Good morning, everybody. And uh, every Sunday is a, a little Easter on the way to our annual celebration. And so he is alive and risen, and we live and move in his being. Amen? So if you're new, welcome. Uh, as you heard, my name is Brady. My claim to fame is I'm married to Shirley. Who, who dresses me properly and teaches me how to behave myself, and uh, so I'm very grateful for that. But really, my joy today is the honor and the privilege to break the scripture and share it with you. Uh, we're in a series in the book of Acts that we've named Praxis out of the long Greek uh, uh, title for the book of Acts, Praxis Apostoloi, the Acts of the Apostles. And this idea of praxis is putting how you put an idea or a blueprint or something and make it real and tangible in the day-to-day -day world that we live in. And so Acts is a book where we get to watch how our first brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, put into practice his revolutionary message, who he was, what he was about, the kingdom of God, and his mission to the world. And we've been looking at this for some time, and we've had a, a wonderful time, I think, looking at Luke, who loves to tell great God stories. And so, as you've gone through, we've seen stories of the goodness and the graciousness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. We've seen the birthing of Jesus' community in the city of Jerusalem. We've heard stories about these open-hearted disciples who wait for 10 days, waiting for the gifting of the power of the Spirit, how that power comes upon them and it generates in them a heart of devotion and a mind of worship, of generosity, a heart to know the apostles' teaching, just all kinds of good news about Jesus and his victory over sin and death. And together, all of these things that were going on in them, we discovered, created a rich, devoted life that the rest of the world around them, the people that lived around them, joined the Jesus movement as they watched this new life in the Spirit going on. So you'd think, wow, being a Jesus person is just, whoa, it's one great spiritual cakewalk. But Luke also tells us in the first six chapters about times where, as we heard in Kathy's prayer, where joy and sorrow come mingled down. And so he tells us that as this community full of the Spirit and walking in the way of Jesus continues to grow and make him known, that opposition rises up. Now, it's not new opposition, it's ongoing opposition that has already risen up against their leader, Jesus, and would result in his unjust crucifixion on what we call Good Friday. This opposition continues after his resurrection, and if successful, this opposition to the Jesus movement would have distorted or derailed its mission in the world. And so it's important for us not only to think about all the, the things that we go, wow, that's good news going on, but we should also look at how the community handled difficult news. You can read about it in the, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and five through, uh, chapter 5, 17 through 40. When you read about the ongoing persecution of the apostles, you know the adage, you want to stop a revolution, kill the leaders. 
Well, in this case, they didn't kill them, but they did threaten them. They beat them. And their whole goal was to, to create silence about this amazing challenge and invitation to follow Jesus of Nazareth, who is declared their anointed king, Messiah. Or in chapter 5, 1 through 11, the issue there is in persecution. The temptation to the church there comes through Ananias and Sapphira, members of the community, where we see a demonic attempt to corrupt the community with the leaven of deceit and hypocrisy, all dressed up in the appearance of honorable religious activity. And so the community all of a sudden becomes aware that even from, not just from out, but from within, there are dangers to overcome. And through the weird, through the weird, I'm weird, through the word and empowering spirit, uh, each of these threats, if you go back and read, are overcome by word and spirit. Our text today is chapter 6 of Acts 1 through 7, the last section about the early community called the church in the city of Jerusalem. And so let me read to you Acts 6, 1 through 7, where we see another spiritual challenge to the people of Jesus. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should not neglect spending our time teaching the word of God and in prayer by serving in the distribution to the poor. And so, brothers and sisters, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching of the Word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert from Greco-Roman paganism to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them and as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Good news but also some complicating news. This spiritual threat, as we unpack the story, ironically is uncovered in the midst of great, open-handed-hearted generosity by the people of Jesus. But instead of joy and a sense of being a family of faith taking care of one another, there was legitimate disconnect and grumbling, roiling up amongst them, threatening the character and the unity of the community of Jesus. The accusations bluntly stated, the Hellenistic Jewish Jesus followers accused the Hebrew, uh, Hebraic Jesus Jewish followers of intentionally overlooking the Hellenistic widows in the daily distribution of bread, overlooking them because of bigotry. Well, what was this daily distribution, first of all? It comes from a deep tradition of the Jewish synagogue life, and it was called the table. 
And they would send members of the synagogue out, go house to house each morning. They would visit there amongst other members of the synagogue. And the members of the synagogue who could would give offerings of food for the table. And then this food was distributed by those who collected it to those who were most permanently unable to provide for themselves. So it was kind of a social net for people, especially people like elderly widows. And it appears from all we can see here, and as well as in 1 Corinthians 16, 2 through 4, which should be on the slide for you, you can read that later, that the community of Jesus simply carried forward this deep commitment to the welfare, the physical, biological welfare of each other. So it makes you wonder, why would anyone, especially why would a Jewish believer in Jesus the Messiah, discriminate against any widow during the distribution of food? It was all about whether you were Hebraic or whether you were a Hellenist Jewish widow. The Hebraic Jews were those men and women who had been born and raised in Palestine, who lived in the land of promise and had never left it. Their first heart language would have been Hebrew. They may have known Greek as well, but they would have had the accent of a person raised in the land. The Hellenistic Jews were Jewish men and women of the diaspora, those who had been moved outside of the promised land of Israel, dispersed by conquering armies or by famine or other causes. But now some of them had returned to the land of promise. And when they returned, oftentimes they were older people. And the reason they would return, leaving family and kin behind and thus being isolated, was because there was this deep awareness and consciousness that when they died, they wanted to be buried in the land of promise. They wanted to be buried close to the temple. And last year when we were in Israel, we saw all these graves coming down the hills, all around the, the temple mount where people had been buried. It was that kind of identification with the land. And so these people who had grown up in the pagan cultures, retained their Jewish distinctive, would come back. What was taking place here was that there was a preference being given to the local folks by the local folks over against the outsiders, even though all were Jewish Jesus people. Now what was going on here was a prejudice not based in moral concerns or that kind of deeper issue, but it was based on different accents or language or cultural tastes that come about from growing up, growing up in a certain place. It would be like coming from Texas or Louisiana and coming to Washington or, even worse, New England, where if you're not one of the local folks, you're not really welcomed fully, even though we're all Americans. Well, what is at risk here? Well, apart from hungry widows, all kinds of really fundamentally important things are at risk. What the disciples will or will not become, is endangered in this brief story. There is a profound spiritual attack going on here. The question that it raises is, will the followers of Jesus, his disciple group, continue to be shaped by mere cultural passions and prejudices? Will they be nationalistic Jews, or will they be kingdom of God men and women? Will Jesus' vision of the kingdom 
and of a community that would declare it be what shapes and reshapes their minds and conduct? Or will it simply be the upbringing of their cultural heritage? This is at stake. Will they be the real deal or will they just be a cultural deal? The second thing that is at stake that comes out of the first is the character of the Lord's heart and his mission is in jeopardy. In this first community, if they can't find the power, the love, the godly love, and the humility to overcome their mere cultural prejudices, then how will they ever find the ways and means to embrace and bear witness to Jesus' vision of rescuing all of humanity? How will they ever be able to form communities that show that God is not a respecter of persons and does not make his choices of love based on your nationality or your accent or those kinds of issues? Will this community find its power in him and its mission in him or they simply become some kind of religious club that sits around and congratulates themselves? These are big issues that are at stake here. I think it's good to pause at this first moment and say, well, so what about us, you know? Well, as I prayed and thought about this, I thought, you know, here's something we can each and everyone do, and I would suggest must do. I'd want to take it both invitation and exhortation to us. We must let the Word and the Spirit take a serious inventory of any and all of our attitudes, any and all of our assumptions, and any of all of our expectations, so that we can escape being merely cultured, American-cultured Christians instead of Christians who bear witness in the American culture. And so perhaps... This week, you could look at Psalms 139, verses 23 and 24 as kind of a starting block. That's where the Lord took me, where the psalmist prays, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me, any corrupted way over against the way of your everlasting path of life. And so let's invite the Lord this week to really search our hearts so that we don't fall prey to the same kind of smallness of mind and smallness of vision, so that we don't distort the very character and witness of what Christ is attempting to do in the world. Amen? I got two amens out of that. That means everybody else is asleep or convicted. Okay? In hope, I, amen. <laughs> okay, let's move on then with that amen. Okay? So what, are the, what does the community do? Well, it calls for the Apostles, which is the next series. Once Call the Midwives is over, PBS is going to do Call the Apostles. I think it'd be much more edifying and helpful to us. But it is all about birth challenges, and the community of Jesus is being birthed in the world. And it is that danger. So the Apostles, they are wonderful in this text. They demonstrate wonderfully helpful servant leadership. We can learn so much by looking at them. What do they do? They call the community together. They call it, and when they call it, they've already prepared what they believe is a thoughtful plan to address this very dangerous situation. But they place it before the community for collective 
reflection and affirmation so they could be of one mind and one heart about this. I think it was also helpful that they understood as apostles their primary calling was to teach this young community the word of Jesus and to make it make sense to them from their Old Testament upbringing and also that they were gifted to the life of teaching and prayer. They wouldn't fall temptation to the temptation, excuse me, to see themselves as the be-all or end-all, and they didn't let the community around them think that they were the be-all or end-all. What a healthy, healthy thing that's going on here in the midst of a challenge. Well, what's the apostle's solution? Well, the apostle's solution is the happy expansion of the community's servant leadership. The apostles meet this difficult challenge an ongoing need by intentionally empowering others within the community of Jesus. They get already what Paul will say later in Ephesians 4, that the purpose of pastoral leadership is to equip the saints to the joy and glory of ministry. And so they expanded. And what are they called? What are the translations they're called? Those who serve the table. And so here is this idea. Seven of the Jesus followers would be chosen by the community to take on the failed task and make it right. Make it in a way that Jesus would affirm. Later we'll discover that this first group will eventually, in 1 Timothy, move into kind of a formal office within the community, the early community of Jesus. You can read that in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. But here the seven are merely called by what they do. They're called servants. And so this wonderful reality of the apostolic servers now pass on their mission of serving and find people capable of doing. You know, again, this, this struck me. You know, what is being put in place here? What are they doing that will grow into what we read in Timothy? What they're doing is giving helpful, thoughtful, needed structures that will allow by the expansion of the community's servant to help guard the community from harm and forward its mission in the world. You know, in our community, very soon, we will be announcing to you times of gathering together as a community, a number of them, where we will roll out for you from the deacons, elders, and the pastoral staff and invite your participation and give and take and, and prayers about a new way of governing our community. You know, at times I hear people say, oh, I don't really like politics. You know, I don't care about that sort of thing. I just want to love the Lord. So my appeal to you, if you can hear it, as your present lead pastor, how's that for pulling out clout, is that you would come here, interact, and help us determine the wisdom of this proposal. You all know by living in a culture, that whether it be the nation or be a local church like our community, the way it chooses its leadership, the way it chooses its structures of decision-making will either prove a great hindrance to the mission of the culture or the church or a great way of creating health and impact in the broader world. And so I encourage you to love the Lord with all your mind and heart and to be fully engaged in the life of our community together. Well, what were the community? What was the community defined? Well, they were defined seven. 
They were to find seven disciples who were, had three things, a trinity of character qualities. They were to be well-respected, having proven in their lifestyle, you could observe this about them, that they were trustworthy and faithful. By the time you get to Timothy 3, it'll say that leaders should be above reproach, having a good reputation both within the community and with outsiders. So you have a quality of life that everybody who sees it from what they can see says well done this is a person who is respected and lives a life above reproach they were to find seven who had the fullness of the spirit in their lives that you could see it in them that they were empty of self and their own ideas their own mind and their own direction their own vision instead had taken into themselves the heart and mind and vision of the spirit of Jesus in fact they because they were welcoming of the spirit they discovered greater fullness of the spirit they were the kind of men that, at this time and women later who would be yielded and moved and pressed by the word and by the spirit and here full of the spirit also appears to carry the idea of being mature or just being sensible the third thing that they were to look for is they were to find seven who were gifted with wisdom from the Lord. One wonders if this whole mess came because those who were distributing simply weren't wise enough to understand the social, relational, spiritual implications of being, you know, prejudicial toward their own kind. So the apostles say, go find seven people who have the wisdom of Jesus, who are able to do Jesus' work in Jesus' way in the day-to-day -day world. Now, I wish they would have added one more. They didn't, so this is not word of the Lord. You got that? I wish it would have said, and find people who will formally join the community. And identify with it fully. You know? Well, they didn't need to say that because these people would be circumcised in order to get into the Jewish community and then baptized publicly. They, they lost their jobs because of their allegiance and stuff. You were either in or you weren't. But we live in a different world where the state and nonprofit organizations, all that stuff, that there's a thing called just attending with good heart, good mind, and good vision. But actually, it's a different thing than being a member where you actually have voice and legal right of, uh, to help guide the community. And so I'm going to unabashedly ask you to pray seriously about serious membership because we need a growing community. There are some roles in the community by law and statute that cannot be fulfilled except by members who take it on and say, I'm in openly and fully and verbally. And so if you're uh, open to that, you can get a membership information thing. It's a really nice little done packet about the community in the, uh, uh, in the narthex from uh, the uh, information table, okay? Well, enough on that. So two things so far, three things. Pray, Lord, search my heart. Two, to really think through this question of, you know, how am I... Um, uh, what am I trying to say? What are the risks and how am I living in regards to those? Pray through that psalm. Pray about being a member. Well, back to the text. Luke closes with a happy conclusion. 
These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them, the text says, as they laid their hands on them. That is, they commissioned and acknowledged and blessed them. They said, we're in and we've got your back kind of thing for these seven servants. So God's message, listen to this, so God's message, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem. Not just in numbers, but in depth of spirit. You know, we give enough hamburgers away, you can fill the building. But to be a community that has depth of spirit in a culture like ours, this is becoming a critical need. But how can we find people like this unless people have a vision to become like this? And so my last encouragement to you is to recognize that the community of Jesus moves forward by the maturation, the maturing, and the spiritual fullness of its people. That it grows in impact in the world because it matures in the impact of Jesus Christ. And so as our community grows and as our community ages and our community expands its vision, etc., we will need to find these kinds of servant leaders over and over. I remember talking to one of our international students one time. They were from India. And so I asked him, I said, what is a Mahatma? And they said, is that Mr. Gandhi's first name? And they laughed at me and they said, no, it's a title. And I said, oh, what's it mean? It means great souled. And I thought, oh, I'd like to grow up to be a Mahatma. Mahatma Bobbing sounds pretty weird. <clears throat> so maybe we should... Take the same idea, St. Paul says this in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. He says, those who desire the work, hear that? Those who desire the work of an elder desires a noble thing. What's your desire? What's your vision for yourself? 20-somethings and teenagers, would you stand up for a moment? Be bold. Look at this. Okay? My question for you, 20-somethings and teenagers, what do you long to become? What is the shaping vision of the shape of your mind and heart that you see in your future? Will you be one of those that when the church a community here needs leadership that's of your age group, will you be found worthy, respectful, full of the Spirit, and knowing and expressing your gifts? That's the vision I'd want to plant in your hearts. You will become the leaders of the communities that you are a part of as the years already, many of you are leaders in the college community. Well done. But keep crystal clear your vision. Amen? You are Jesus' arms and legs for the next generation. Be better than the culture's generation. Offer hope and live in the Spirit. Amen? Amen. How about you 30-somethings and 40-somethings? Some of you are now. The women, stand up anyway. You're going to live forever. What are you doing, you know? What is your vision? What is the thing that you hunger for? 
Do you hunger to become men and women saturated in word and spirit so you can bring the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the age? This is your calling. Even in the midst of all the busyness, I mean, you know, dad here can't even stand up without a kid in his arms. Busy lives, but make yourself have sacred space to be about the master's work. Amen? You 50s are over. I made it really broad so everybody could stand up. Stand up, 50s are over. You 50s are older have the privilege of already being presumed to be mature because you've breathed longer. But we know that breathing does not make maturity, nor love, nor compassion, nor any other virtue. <laughs> Was that a cynical 20 or <laughs> a cynical 40 or what is this? You know? Anyway, we got an amen over there on that one, so I guess it must be the Lord or something, right? Okay. You must choose. Are you going to be culturized seniors... God deliver us, whose lives are about, I'd rather be shopping or sunbathing or chasing golf balls for a living? Or are you going to become elders and elderesses in the community of Hillcrest Chapel? It is your noble task to do the work of love and caring for the younger generation's and making room for them. Will you do this? Will you have this vision to be those kinds of stable, consistent men and women of Jesus the Lord? Amen? Amen. Amen. That's my challenge to you. Okay? So, having said that, what will come from this will be decision-making. And so, I would like to close... By praying for us. Enough said for the day. Let's pray. Lord, we are, uh, we are blessed by so many wonderful men and women here. Many, many, many of them busy doing things of your kingdom. We ask you to breathe out your spirit again. And that you would anoint and challenge our hearts again that you would raise us up to be indeed a lighthouse here at Hillcrest of missionary movement, of wisdom, of teaching, of generosity. Lord, all the things we see growing in us, we pray that you will mature it in us. And in the end, it will be said of this community, see how they love God, see their devotion to one another, and see how God has entrusted new ones to them as he's expanded his mission. We ask this in our love and our worship of you, and we pray you will fulfill our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.